Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. This week, 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 7. So if you could give a title to this particular book of Scripture, 2 Corinthians, that there are a lot of potential answers here, but my favorite option would be to call this epistle The Great Exchange. Because what's going on here is incredibly powerful in not just its historical setting, but in its doctrinal setting. So if we if we actually begin not in chapter 1, but go clear over to chapter 5, verse 21. So this is called, in, in many circles, this is called the great exchange verse. Listen to this. For he hath made him, so that he would be God, hath made his son to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So what's happening, that, that might have sounded a little complicated at first, but what you have is Christ who is in his perfection, us who are in our imperfection, in our sinful, carnal, fallen state, and then you have God the Father, who sees our fallen state, and there's nothing we can do about it. I I can't resurrect myself, and I can't go into the past and fix what I did wrong, because I'm imperfect. But Christ, who never did any wrong, he, he could help us, and so what this becomes is a great exchange. It's one of the most merciful verses in all the scripture canon that we have. With that understanding, let's look at it one more time. For he hath made him to be sin for us. So he has Christ take upon himself our sin. He becomes the embodiment of our uh, effects of the fall, if you will. And yet, he knew no sin, but he becomes the embodiment of our sin because of this exchange that's taking place, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So, it's this beautiful interchange that's taking place throughout 2 Corinthians, but it really culminates right there in chapter 5, verse 21. This is powerful how Paul takes situations going on in the Corinthian ward, where we talked about in the past was dealing with a lot of internal division and conflict, and he uses a variety of challenges they're facing to help them to see how the gospel can inform their lives. In fact, in particular, what he's addressing in, in these chapters is other Christian preachers had showed up and they had been very verbose, they brought letters of recommendation, they were very wise, they were wealthy, and they disparaged Paul. Remember, Paul had 
he had created, or he had been the original preacher for the, that Christian community. He was a tent maker, he worked with his hands, and suddenly you bring in these very eloquent preachers, and they're basically saying, why would you listen to a manual labor who isn't very sophisticated? When we have these letters of recommendation, look how wealthy we are. And so some of the Corinthian saints were saying, oh, maybe we should follow these preachers who are building themselves up and building up their own kingdoms because they are really awesome to be around. And Paul writes this letter and, and just shows that Christ himself, who had all things, he's the king of the heavens, descended below all things. He lived in poverty. He suffered. He did everything he didn't have to to lift us up. And so if anyone's really going to be a preacher of Christ, they should follow his example to be suffering with people, upbuilding them, working for their behalf. It's okay to be a laborer with your own hands. It's okay if you don't speak with sophisticated words. Did Jesus come with deep sophistry and philosophy? So this context is important. Now, whether or not we master the context, this principle is true. But I love how Paul uses this very challenging context in the Corinthian ward to make it totally clear the beautiful principle that we received everything from Jesus Christ so God could receive all things, which is us. Now, if we remember, th this is, we, we call it 2 Corinthians, but really it's, it's at least 3 Corinthians because we lost that first letter that we already discussed back when we introduced 1 Corinthians as described in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. So we don't have his first letter. We don't have the response letter back to him from them. What we have was our 1 Corinthians, which is his then response. And you'll remember he was pretty, uh, in parts of 1 Corinthians, he was pretty heavy-handed. There was some rebuking, there was some disciplining and some correcting going on. And you could also see how other people from the outside could come in and say, why are you going to listen to this guy? He's just beating you up. He just tore you down. He made you feel like, like dirt here. So why are you listening to him? And isn't it fascinating that principle in Doctrine and Covenant section 121 that you rebuke be time with sharpness, but then you show an increase of love afterward. That's what the great exchange epistle is. It's, it's Paul, you're, you're going to see this as we go through these chapters today, you're going to see him exchanging his rebuke with love. And what a beautiful principle for parents, for leaders, for anybody that you work with, that if you ever have to do any correcting, make sure that afterward there's an increase of love lest they esteem you to be their enemy. It's a beautiful principle that we see this object lesson of this actual epistle playing that out for us on the page. So just to reinforce, if there's nothing else you remember from the lesson, just remember that God the Father set up a plan for you to be redeemed by his son, Jesus Christ, that Christ was willing to descend below all things, exchange his perfection and receive your imperfection and thus blot it out. So before we dive into to chapter one and then work our way through these, let's develop this great exchange uh, one step further. It's this idea of our sinful state versus Christ's perfected righteousness 
That's what's being exchanged here. He's righteous. We're sinful. Um, this, this concept from the book Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes the following, only a bad person needs to repent, but only a good person can repent perfectly. The worse you are, the more you need repentance, but the less you can do it. The only person who could do it perfectly would be a perfect person, and he would not need it. You see, you see the paradox here? Do you see the incredible need for a great exchange to take place? Now, skipping down, he says, unfortunately, we now need God's help in order to do something which God, in his own nature, never does at all. That is, to surrender, to suffer, to submit, to die. Nothing in God's nature corresponds to this process at all. Now, skipping down a little bit further. But supposing God became a man, suppose our human nature, which can suffer and die, was amalgamated with God's nature in one person, then that person could help us. He could surrender his will, suffer and die because he was a man, and he could do it perfectly because he was a god. You and I can go through this process only if God does it in us, but God can do it only if he became a man. So, brothers and sisters, the, as, as we go through, again, as Taylor said, if you, if you forget everything else, all the other details, don't forget this. When we say, when we quote John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that that statement is encapsulated in this, in this amazing great exchange that he is offering for us, and yet how often do we complain about the need to repent or the need to try to change our life and the need to try to swallow up our will in the will of the Father? You look at it from this perspective, and we should all be shouting, hallelujah, there's, there's hope for me. Why? Because Christ condescended from his righteousness to become the, or to take on flesh and to become sin without ever sinning. He stayed perfect, but he became the object of sin to pay the full price of justice and answer the ends of the law for us so that condescension of Christ could then lead to exaltation for each of us, where we can receive in exchange for our sin, our weakness, our badness, we could receive his righteousness. So, as we begin chapter one, you'll see this pattern in all of Paul's epistles. He begins by introducing himself and then by giving his credentials as an apostle and as a witness of the name of Jesus Christ and this authority of the Godhead. In every, in every epistle that he's writing, he begins in that way. So, I, I find it fascinating, Taylor, where, 
we've noticed as you go through, there are very different messages for different groups of saints in different locations. So there's some contrast in these epistles, but it's also fun to notice the comparisons and say, wow, that is a repeat, which means because of its frequency and its repetition, we should pay more attention to that as saying, ooh, this is something that is probably universally applicable more so than these one-off lessons. Notice this use of the word grace and peace. Now, this is a common greeting that is used in ancient letters. Even today, uh, when people used to write letters, they would say things of this nature. But in particular, Paul is trying to heal the breach a bit of what happened in the letter of 1 Corinthians, where he had to speak with uh, clarity about the problems that were going on with the, the disunity in the church. But now he wants to come with God's grace and peace to help them to see that you can repent and you can find yourself back in God's graces as you have created a unified Christian community. So here we begin with this, with this grace um, and peaceful intro. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, meaning one who is sent by Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, that's his, that's his missionary companion at this point when he's writing the letter, and he's writing to the, to the saints in Corinth. Verse 2, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. Again, you're going to notice throughout this entire book, just keep this on the front burner, this, this great exchange symbolism of everything in this book is going to be taking the good and exchanging it for the bad. It's, it's the, the eternal recycling program in the, it's not just recycling, it's the eternal upgrade program, where in this case, he says grace and peace, where do they come from? They're not coming from Paul. They're not coming from your neighbor. They're not coming from your leaders. They're coming, the grace and peace comes from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, grace and peace coming from above are going to be exchanged for what? What do we bring to the table? What do we bring to the, to the body of the saints, in this case in Corinth or in your home ward? What do we bring? We bring the opposite often of grace and peace. We bring disunity, disloyalty, and turmoil, and tribulation, and trial. That's, we come wanting these good things, but we're not very good at it. We're not perfect, and so God the Father and His Son offer this great exchange for what we bring. It's a pretty amazing exchange rate. Like, I've traveled to foreign countries where I exchange my national dollars the money in that place, and there's a, a loss that happens, or sometimes a gain. This one is like, I bring my brokenness, and God exchanges it for what is real. And by the way, the word real and royal come from the same root word, and God is the king. The royal king provides what is real, and that is the exchange. He is providing us our royal identity that we get to bring into his kingdom where we are fully admitted into his presence. So now watch this continue. 
Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. There's a lot of confusion or there's a lot of debate in the world of Christianity at large about theology, about the nature of God, about the nature of Christ and, and the relationship within the Godhead. You know, when you read Paul's intros in every one of his epistles, it, he seems to speak so beautifully about that perfect relationship between the Father and the Son in the Godhead, and he's not emphasizing the things that sometimes get emphasized in Christianity today, because to him, he's seeing it very clearly, this perfect relationship where God sent his Son to save us. Now look at verse 4, who comforted us in all our tribulation. Circle that word all for a moment and pay attention. All our tribulation, meaning there are some of you who maybe feel like Jesus Christ is a great savior for everybody else and their problems, but not for my unique combination of trials or sins or addictions or weakness. I love how Paul uses the, this extreme uh, all-encompassing word, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. It's back to his idea of, of charity that we talked about before, this idea that these charitable deeds and kind words and actions, they're wonderful, but they are a reflection of the comfort that God has given us. Notice again, so let's read this one more time. God comforteth us in our tribulation. Why? Not just for our own benefit, so that we can now learn to love our neighbor more completely, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. We've experienced it. We've felt it. And by the way, this comfort often manifests itself by somebody else who has experienced that, who is loving us and comforting us and now giving us the capacity to turn outward and comfort others um, so that all may be comforted of God. That is the source of all charity, of all comfort. It's not us. We're sinful, but because of the great exchange, Christ has brought that to us. Let's take this in economic terms about exchange. God is basically exchanging our worthless currency with his enduring currency. He gives that to us, not simply to enrich us alone so that we're sitting around like, I have all this divine currency and wealth. It's to give it away. And as you do, it magnifies and expands. So as he strengthens us, we are asked to strengthen others. And it's powerful that in the English word for comfort, the base word is a fort. A fort is a place of strength and security. Then Paul, before he, he he's going to give them an apology. Uh, he, he's going to speak very softly, very kindly, very lovingly to them. But before, it, so he's introduced this idea of comfort, and then he he's wanting to say to them, um, just so you know, you're not the only ones who have faced tribulation and rebuke from God or from people. And, and verse eighty says. 
For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. We thought we were going to die. That the, the tribulation and the trouble was so intense, we didn't know if we were going to survive. I want to build on this. It's interesting that so intense was the stress and pressure and suffering, Paul said he wasn't certain he on his own devices. In fact, he knew his own strength was insufficient to endure to the end. And this is the powerful verse 9, which is back to this great exchange. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, God which raiseth the dead. And we can take dead also symbolizing any suffering we deal with. So just know that no matter the suffering you have, God is not simply trying to test your personal strength of how much you can endure, but how much can you receive of his comfort to endure? Are you willing to exchange your total suffering with his total comfort? And that's what Paul's trying to convey here. Paul didn't endure on his own. He had God's strength to do it. Isn't it interesting how the great exchange doesn't always result in bad things being replaced with good things? Sometimes it's our agenda being exchanged with God's agenda. Sometimes, and our agenda doesn't have to be bad or wicked or full of tribulation. In this case, it was a good thing, but God had other plans for Paul. He had a different direction for Paul to go, and so even there you're seeing this great exchange. To me, the, this whole concept is truly let God prevail. That phrase that President Nelson loves using is give your whole life let him prevail, and whatever exchanges he wants to make, let's be willing to take them. Now let's jump down to verse 21. Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God. By the way, who gets anointed in ancient times? And from Paul's context, as a, having studied as a Pharisee, he knows all about anointing, which is the, the root word in Hebrew, Mashiach, the anointed one, the Messiah, well, in the Old Testament, the anointed ones are kings, prophets, and priests. And now he's saying, God hath anointed us through Christ. Well, Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah, and he comes down as part of his great exchange to anoint us. So, he takes upon himself our sin, our flesh, and in exchange, he puts his righteousness symbolically on our heads through this great anointing of oil so that we can become kings, queens, priests, priestesses, prophets, prophetesses, that, the, that group of anointed ones. The, the exchange rate, once again, astronomically in our favor. The word Melchizedek, we think about the Melchizedek priesthood, which often represents this process or the power through which these ordinances are conveyed. Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness, representing the totality of all this anointing that all of us have been promised by God and that we all desire, that we all want to fulfill our divine destiny to be like God, a king or queen of righteousness. Now, one of the sweetest verses 
in a very sweet epistle. By the way, I, I hope you're enjoying 2 Corinthians. It's, it's one of my favorites because it's just, it's so filled with grace and hope and, uh, and God's goodness that we, quite frankly, don't deserve, and, and it's so powerful. Look at verse 22 to, to bring this home from a different angle. Who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. If you look up that word earnest in Strong's Concordance, you'll see that it's a financial term. It's the, the closest thing we would have to that today would be earnest money. If you, if you want to buy a property or buy a home or buy a business or something, you, you show that you're earnest in your intention to own that thing by putting down some money. It's earnest money. It's not even close to the full price for that, for whatever it is that you're purchasing. It's just to show that I'm serious about this relationship and I fully intend, I am earnest in giving you the full amount someday when, when certain terms of the uh, agreement are fulfilled. We'll stop and think about it this way. God hath sealed us, and he has given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. God has given you in your heart, he's given you these little, it's not even a down payment, it's just these little uh, amounts of earnest money to show you he's serious about purchasing you, about owning you, about paying the full price to and giving us the fullness that he has to offer, but for now, during the test of mortality, he can't give us the splendors. That's why the scriptures say, I hath not seen, nor hath ear heard, what great things God hath in store for those that love him. He can't give us the full purchased possession yet, but he can give us the earnest money, and for him, the currency the great exchange currency of that earnest money is his Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit in our heart. So when you feel the Spirit testifying to you of God's love, of Christ's reality, of his perfect atonement and his long-suffering grace, enjoy that earnest payment. Enjoy that, that reminder yet again, God is serious about me. He's serious about owning me, and he's got all these things in store for me, and I don't have to beat myself up because I'm not absolutely perfect, but I can rely more fully on he who is perfect, because you see, the great exchange has two arrows. It's not just about what Christ was willing to give up for us. It's what we're willing to let go of and give up for him. Otherwise, the exchange can't take place. He has perfectly fulfilled his side. God the Father perfectly fulfilled his part in giving his son. I have to be willing to open my heart and to accept that earnest payment of the Spirit and act on it and let go of some of those things that, that my heart has become so uh, rooted in in this fallen world and in my fallen condition for that great exchange to, to be able to be completed.
This reminds me of the Book of Mormon, where we have the Nephite preachers going among the Lamanites, and Lamoni's father, the king of the Lamanites, he says, I will give away all my sins to know thee. That's part of the great exchange. It's an invitation for all of us. We just kind of need to get over ourselves and say, it's okay. God is actually not shocked or surprised that we're in a fallen state. This was not like somehow disordered from the plan of salvation. This was actually all part of the plan. And we sometimes get ourselves so stuck in our fallen nature, like, I must be so wretched. Well, it is true, but that's kind of by design so that we can turn everything over to God and let him make us unwretched. In fact, as you read Paul, you'll often notice how he talks in opposites. And look for those themes here. And this is the theme of opposites. God's greatness fully subsumes our nothingness. And it's okay. It's okay. God is not afraid of our nothingness. So then he, he finishes chapter one by saying, moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul. He's basically invoking the, the heavenly authority as, as God being the ultimate testifier or witness in, in a court or legal setting. He's calling upon God that to spare you, I came not as yet unto Corinth to say, God has other things in store for you and for me, and he's my witness. This is, this is why I didn't come to you yet. Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. He's given you opportunities to stand without, without us coming and doing this for you. Um, and then he, he launches into his apology in chapter 2. But I determined this with myself that I would not come again to you in heaviness. Not like that heavy letter we'd read earlier, but instead he wants to bring this love and forgiveness and even seeking for their love and forgiveness in, in return. And doesn't he tie this into Jesus? Because it's like God has forgiven us, he's loved us. As a Christian community, we should be doing the same. And Paul now in this chapter is trying to model for people, I am trying to be more like Jesus by forgiving you and also seeking your love in return. So if any of you have any loved ones who are struggling with their faith or struggling with their, their belief or struggling in any other way, look at how he describes this in verse 3. I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears. Some of you, some of you can relate to this better than others. This affliction, this seeing loved ones struggle, and it, it, it hurts. It pains our soul. He says, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Why does it hurt so bad? It's because you love so well. If you didn't love, it wouldn't hurt. You wouldn't care what your loved ones did with their life. There's an element reflected here of the divine where you become a little bit more like the Savior when you have that empathy, when you have that compassion, when you have those feelings and those prayers to heaven in their behalf. 
Why? It's not because you want to force them to conform to certain behaviors. It's because you want them to be happy and you know that the decisions they're making in many cases aren't going to lead to any kind of lasting happiness. Well, can you see, can you see the great exchange here? Can you see God the Father looking at us with those same tears of compassion and love and empathy? And can you see the Savior's infinite agonies through his, his infinite atonement? He loves so perfectly that he's willing to take upon himself and bear our burdens and carry our sorrows and our griefs for us because he knows what he can then offer on the back end, that great exchange of him being able to one day wipe away all your tears. So, brothers and sisters, the point here is not to take this upon ourselves. It's to cast this burden upon the Lord. It's to trust in him more fully. It's to express more love to those, to those loved ones who are struggling in a way where they feel our confidence in Christ, our trust in God for them. That will be a much better motivating factor than guilting or shaming them or, or preaching negatively at them, trying to get them to conform to behaviors. But that steady, quiet confidence in Christ that comes as we radiate that love. So look at verse um, six, uh, verse six. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was justif- or which was inflicted of many. So that contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such an one be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. It's that idea of they know they they know they're doing wrong. They're trying to justify it, trying to rationalize. It, I get it, but they often don't need more condemnation because they're experiencing some suffering. They need to experience a great exchange from us. This comfort in exchange for judgment. I like how he continues to build on this. Again, he's trying to signal for them how he is aligned with Jesus Christ. He's trying to represent as an apostle, here's what Jesus Christ would do. Verse 10, to him, to whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. So this is Paul speaking, but you can imagine Jesus speaking. For if I forgive anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgive I it in the person of Christ. So again, a Christian community, we are called Christians, not because we declare it with our words, but because we live it in our souls and in our lives. And forgiveness is a core essence. If you consider the great exchange, the great exchange is the essence of forgiveness, where something is given away, our sins, that really shouldn't have been given away because we had to pay the price, and God says, I'm going to forgive it. I'm going to take care of it. So that kind of forgiveness is inherent and in the essence of the great exchange. Which now brings us to chapter three. <clears throat> and you heard Taylor at the beginning talk about these letters of recommendation, letters of condom- or commendation. Look how he, he um, goes after that idea. Verse one, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or, or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Do we need other people to give 
to give a good word so you'll trust us? Yeah, could you imagine if the way the church was run is that you needed a whole bunch of letters of recommendation before we called Relief Society presidents and home teachers, prophets and apostles. Now, it is true, there has to be a form of recommendation. That comes from God. There's a, there's a sense of revelation where somebody has been called to a position, not that a bunch of elite people say, hey, we really like this person and we're going to write a nice letter and we're going to install them as a leader out of our own merit, our own wisdom, and that was going on anciently. Now, look, the modern world kind of works like that. We're not saying that's a problem. You get letters of recommendation when you go get a job, or if you're trying to get an opportunity somewhere. That's how the world works, and frankly, it's a good thing. But all on its own, that is not how the kingdom of God works. You need to have authorization from God, and this is the point Paul makes. He has already has the letter of recommendation. It is the Spirit of God. It's the visions he's received. He's about as recommended as they come. And it's beautiful how, how he plays that out in verse 3. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us. You're our letter. It's you. This, this living body of people written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. That's where the real exchange can take place that really matters, not these ink-written, look at all these important people who think I'm important, therefore you should think I'm important. That means nothing. All of the, the commendations of the world aren't going to have the angels up in heaven all of a sudden start taking notes saying, oh, we, we should pay attention. Yeah. My academic credentials, my degrees, my, my attainments in work do not qualify, qualify me for service in the kingdom. Those skills actually might benefit the kingdom, but look, I've been in the church for a long time. I have seen people called into positions who, from a worldly standpoint, weren't technically qualified, and God magnified them. And there were other people who apparently were qualified according to worldly standards. And God called them to other positions. And I love how Paul just says, hey, look, if you need a letter of recommendation, you're it. I'm the one who actually conver you know, converted, preached all of you to Jesus Christ. And some of the group is now saying with their letters of recommendation, you're going to follow them. I also love how he ties in Jeremiah chapter 31, where he brings in this idea of the covenant now being written in the heart. We don't need written instructions. Now, it is helpful to have written instructions, but ultimately what God cares about do we have his covenant written in our heart? You know, that's, that's actually a really good point that, that is worth digging into a little bit more here, is that it really doesn't matter how much ink has been used to write how many amazing words and commandments and prophecies and revelation if none of them end up written in my heart. The world could be filled literally with sacred words and sacred books from, from holy prophets, and it won't make any difference to me unless some of those words or more of those words become written, written on my heart. So isn't it an amazing opportunity as, you, as we continue to go through the Come Follow Me curriculum that the church has prepared that the goal isn't just to become smarter, it's not to learn some historical facts and some uh, context or maybe some Greek language stuff. 
all of that is a means to an end of getting the words of God written in our heart. And look at verse 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves. <laughs> we, we technically can't write letters of recommendation that really matter in an eternal sense for ourselves or for anyone else. We can't give ourselves authority. But our sufficiency is of God. Our authority comes from God. There you go. So then he, he brings in Moses and his countenance and the veil, and he does this beautiful object lesson because when Moses came down off of Mount Sinai, he was glowing and his face was so, I guess, uh, transfigured and, and bright that he used a veil. And then Paul says, verse 14, but their minds were blinded for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. He's saying, you, you Jewish Christians in Corinth, you're keeping the veil over your face when you're reading the Old Testament, and if you take that off, it is done away in Christ. Now you can see the full meaning of the Old Testament if you read it through the lenses of Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now look at verse 18, but we all with open face, notice no veil, all of us when we take that veil off, beholding as in a glass or a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Is this back to the great, great exchange. exchange? You pull the veil off and you look in the mirror and you're supposed to see the face of God. And Christ came down, pulls the veil off, and who does he see in the mirror? He sees you. He sees me. And he answers the ends of the law for you and me. He, he takes our place in that court of justice, and the full extent of the law is extended to him in the infinite agonies and the punishment that were meant for me, that were deserved by me, that couldn't be overcome by me. He took it so that now when I look in the mirror and you look in the mirror, we see reflected there the image of Christ. Brings us back to Alma chapter 5. Have you received his image in your countenance? He's already done everything he can in this great exchange. Now he will assist us and help us to do our part to give our life over to him so that increasingly when you look in the mirror, you see reflected there elements of the divine, elements of our Savior and Redeemer. Let's put this back into their cultural context. In Corinth, which is a very diverse, vibrant society, imagine any large city today, anywhere in the world, just so much diversity of religious and political and economic thought. So in Corinth, you had all these, uh, up on Aqua Corinth, you had all these temples dedicated to so many gods. You'd have the image of the gods and people would have to go do sacrifices to those gods. Imagine how soul expanding it is that instead of going up to Aqua Corinth and giving away food offerings to some fake god who's got a statue there, Paul is teaching through Revelation 
you do need to do a sacrifice. You need to make offerings. It's your soul. It is giving away your sins. And who are you doing it to? To God. And you can see God's image in the mirror. That's really quite stunning. Now, we've grown up with these concepts, so to us it's like not that like revelatory. Like, yeah, I've heard this before. For the ancient Corinthians, it would have been really mind-expanding, like, wow, this is incredible stuff. So again, just think that what God asks us to do is to give those sins away so we can more fully see His image reflected in our lives and in the community of God's image that's everywhere. We should be seeing in our Christian communities representations of God everywhere. This is so powerful, Taylor. Now, now watch with this context that Taylor's just set up with, with the, the Corinthian saints living under the shadow of Acro-Corinth and the incredible amounts of idol worship going on. Look at verse 4, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Keep in mind those idols are images of their pantheon of gods and goddesses, and he's saying, how does God reveal who he is? He sent his Son. And you move on to verse 6, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, back to the creation, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So another great exchange. We bring darkness, he brings light. He shines that light in in exchange for our darkness. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. It's a way to refer to your flesh, your, your body of flesh and bone. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. It's all of the good things that we're going to do, it's because of the great exchange. It's because of God giving us these capacities, this power to act, this knowledge, this wisdom, these, these good desires that we just, we give them a place in our heart to grow, and then the gardener does all of the miracle of them growing, that all of these amazing miracles that are being performed in these earthen vessels, it's because of God. It's not, we're not generating that on our own. Which brings us to verse 8. What do we bring? We are troubled on every side, yet we're not distressed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. And Paul loves to just put these opposites together to kind of make these learning experiences just more obvious. So, so if you're feeling frustrated that you're saying, wow, I'm experiencing so many um, troubling things in my life right now, go back to verse 8. You are troubled on every side, and you've probably noticed that troubles aren't very uh, courteous. They don't usually stand in a, a line and wait their turn. Sometimes they gang up on you. Sometimes the, the full fury of trouble unleashes like a, a violent storm in your life. But you'll notice the promise through Christ, we don't have to be distressed. If we're rooted in Christ, if we're continually seeking to give our life over to Him, we will have trouble, but we don't need to be distressed. We can be still and know that He is God. It won't make the troubles go away, 
it will just have allow him to calm the distressing storm and the despair inside of us. Verse 9, he takes it further, persecuted but not forsaken. You, you start flipping through the scriptures forwards and backwards from here and you're going to find all kinds of trouble, perplexing situations, and persecution, but we don't need to have the, the negative results or responses to those elements. He says, we're going to be cast down but not destroyed always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. We're allowing the great exchange to live today. Don't. This isn't a lesson for next week. This isn't a lesson for Sunday or for next year or for when, when you're much older or near death. This is a lesson for today. In fact, it's a lesson for right now to allow the life of Jesus Christ to take deeper root in, in my heart and in my life as I move forward. Now, if you jump over to verse 16, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. As you get older and older, or as disease, or as accidents, or as natural effects start taking place on the body, the outward man begins to perish, but he's saying the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Can you see the great exchange? Can you see yet again an exchange of our weakness, our mortality, our frailties, being exchanged for what? And an exceeding and eternal weight of glory, rather than this moment of affliction that we're experiencing. If we're willing to take up the cross that God has given us to bear, and if we bear it to the best of our ability with our focus fixed on Jesus Christ, the promise is sure that the weight of glory is far exceeding the weight of that cross that we may be bearing at this point in our life or moving forward. So as you read Paul, you might find him just a bit confusing at times with just how he uses these opposites again and again. But if you again remember the great exchange, this in some ways is the great opposite. God has everything, we have nothing. Uh, Hope, despair, right? Sin, forgiveness. It goes on and on. So as you read through Paul, you'll see him again and again pairing contrasts that could be understood through the lens of the great exchange. So now let's let's skip over some of these verses and, and jump to the towards the ending of chapter 5 where he says verse uh, 17 therefore if any man be in Christ he is a new creature old things are passed away behold all things are become new great exchange all, I bring all the old, he offers me all the new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. The word reconciled there comes from this Greek word, which actually is rooted in the word exchange, that you, you change 
coinage, you, you change currency, there is an exchange taking place and God is reconciling you to himself by Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father is offering Jesus Christ in this exchange and now we just have to give what we have onto the table, which isn't very much, in order to accept that exchange rate. Again, if we think about like a financial world, we have accounting, and accounting is this very process where you want to make sure that the books are balanced. And if they're imbalanced, somehow there has to be a way to reconcile the books. And if you're in debt, God is the only way to reconcile you. In fact, I'll take the word finance just very briefly. It's such an interesting word. The word finance comes from the word final. So if you think about the final days or the last days, like where all the accounts had to be brought together and reconciled, finance is about things coming to an end. We're going to close out the books. And God is the great closer of the books who reconciles everything. And it's actually Jesus Christ who presents those books reconciled, spotless and clean, to God. And despite all the messiness of the accounting that we brought to bear, Jesus is the great accountant, the great financier who knows how to smooth everything out. He does all the exchange and he presents everything glorious to God. And we are down here so worried that we have to fix the accounting. Like, it's not our job to do the work of Christ in that way. Ultimately, he is the one who does the great finance, the great accounting at the final day. Now, yes, we need to do our part to fix things as we can, as we rely on Jesus Christ. But it's very, very powerful that, again, one of the core things of Paul is stop trying to save yourself. Accept the freely offered grace and love of Jesus Christ, bind yourself in that relationship, and be obligated to follow in the works of Jesus Christ, which is being willing to suffer, endure difficulty, to share with one another, to forgive, and Christ never needed to do this, but we need to repent. But you don't have to save yourself. It's glorious when you let go of the need to do God's work of salvation on your own. I've experienced that in my own life. And he reemphasizes that in verse 19. After introducing the ministry of reconciliation in the bottom of verse 18, he says, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the word world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. God is doing his work in the world through Christ, not condemning you because of your imperfection, but through Christ, allowing this, this opportunity to be reconciled to God. The, the word underlying reconciliation here, katalege, it's this, it's this Greek word that keeps coming up and getting translated as reconciliation or being reconciled. Keep in mind, back in Romans 5 verse 11, it was translated as atonement. And it's the only time, one time in the entire New Testament, 27 books, where you get the word atonement. That was back in Romans 5, verse 11. Here, it could have just as easily been translated as atonement, reconciliation, because it's the same Greek word underlying it here as it is back in Romans 5. It's 
the atonement of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is the ultimate exchange. It's where Christ descended below all of us and took upon himself all of our sins, all of our weakness, all of the effects of the fall of Adam and Eve that we experience in any degree, he takes it all. And uh, that's the great exchange, which now leads into verse uh, 20. Now, when we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. That's the key, is that we don't just look at the gospel of Jesus Christ as one side of a coin, that it's what can God do for me and what did God do for me and what has Christ accomplished for me. He already told you God is reconciled to you and you're reconciled to God through Christ, and now what is our part? Be ye reconciled to God. And how do I do that? I don't do that on my own. I do that through Christ, through my covenantal connection with him, by having faith in him, trusting him, repenting of my sins, getting baptized, entering into that covenant relationship with him, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end on that covenant path. That's how I become reconciled to God. And by the way, I don't do any of that on my own. I do all of that in connection with and empowered by and fueled by the strength and the grace of Jesus Christ. All of that reconciliation discussion now brings you to where we started with the great exchange verse 21. With all of this, this context that we've shared, let's read verse 21 again. For God hath made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin. Christ knew no sin, but God made him become that for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So here's the Father using the Son as this great exchange mediator of reconciliation, or at one moment, becoming one with God. Which now brings us to chapter 6. He says, We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. Or lacking in purpose. So he, he gives you in chapter 6 th these elements that are associated with our salvation and this reconciliation process of what do we need to do, and instead of being frustrated when bad things happen to us, recognize that God is in charge and he can turn all things to our gain <clears throat> if we keep our focus in the, in the proper place fixed on him. And of course, Jesus Christ is a great exemplar. There's all these verses, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. all these bad things that may or could happen in your life. What happened to Jesus? He was the one who shouldn't have ever experienced anything bad. In the great exchange, he was willing to suffer all things. Paul also demonstrates it as a follower of Christ. He also has suffered a lot and that people shouldn't be surprised when they suffer. But in the great exchange, you will be able to find comfort and peace and strength that God will give you to endure and that suffering will be turned to an eternal weight of glory. Yes. Now, you come down to verse 
14, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? That yoke analogy, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can I just say there's never been a time when there's been more of an unequally yoked situation than when Christ invited me to come into a yoke with him. He took my sin and in exchange he offers me his yoke, which is a yoke of righteousness. And let's provide some clarity here because Paul used a different verse back in 1 Corinthians talking about the value of, say, a believing spouse being married to an unbelieving spouse, and he indicated that the belief of one spouse would be uplifting to the unbelieving spouse. Well, is now Paul, do we call him a liar? This guy can't seem to get his doctrine straight. Or would we see that as a good leader, he's giving very specific instructions at specific times, even if it seems like on the face of it, they don't come together. And how would we reconcile this? Yes, it is okay to be married to somebody who has different beliefs, to be in friendship with people who believe or act differently. What we're talking about here is from an eternal standpoint, you need to be yoked to Jesus Christ. Yes, you will have lots of relationships with people on different paths or on different stations of the path back to Jesus Christ. And don't find yourself stuck far back on the path because of a friendship. You don't have to abandon friends, but you don't have to necessarily stay at the same spot they are. I think that's what Paul is saying. It's okay to be friends with people. Don't let where they're at keep you from progressing. And then he goes on to describe <clears throat> exactly what Taylor's talking about here, verse 16. But what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, and that ye is in the plural form in Greek. So he's talking to the collective body of saints in Corinth. You, all of you together, you're the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That oft-repeated covenant from the Old Testament comes up again. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, touch not the unclean thing. He's not talking about the people, he's talking about the temples and the idols and the unclean worship. Don't, don't yoke yourself with those gods. They're not equal to you, nor are they anywhere close to being even in the same universe to being equal with God. Bottom of verse 17 said, I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. <laughs> none of the idols can say this, because none of them can talk. I will be your father, and you'll be my sons and my daughters. Remember the three great identities, primary identities, that President Nelson invited us to, to take upon ourselves? I am a child of God. I am a child of the covenant. What's the covenant? I will be your God, you will be my people, is the overarching essence of all of these covenantal connections with God. And the third one, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. Which now brings us to chapter 7. What do I do? I've, I've had all of this beautiful, great exchange imagery taught. I believe the reconciliation, the atonement doctrine. I'm so thrilled that God's willing to, to give me the earnest of his spirit in my heart, these, these down payments, so to speak, but I keep messing up. I'm not perfect. And it fits in the context. 
Paul has this expression of an apology or, or forgiveness or even saying, I'm sorry that my letter to you caused so much distress. And sometimes it seems like he's talking in contradictory terms. Like if you take a look here, he says in verse 8, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I, I did repent. For I received this, perceived that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. So he's not, he's glad that he sent it because it had the intended effect of getting them to repent, but he's also sorry that it hurt people. So he feels both emotions. And if you look at this chapter, he is trying to say, I am sorry, human to human, Christian to Christian, for any pain I may have caused. But as a servant of God, I was under obligation to teach you the truth and to invite you back into that covenantal relationship. And for that, I am not sorry. So that's why we sometimes see that Paul is saying two things that seem to be a little bit different, but he's speaking both as a disciple of Jesus Christ and sometimes just as a, a typical human who has those uh, core emotions. So building on that, look at verse 9 and 10. It says, Now I rejoice not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not mocking your tears, I'm not, or I'm not glorying in your tears. Oh yeah, I, I made them sad. He's saying, that, that doesn't please me. But what does please me is that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. Meaning you don't want to repent of being saved. And you don't want to repent of feeling sorrow if it's godly sorrow that leads you to repentance or brings you to God. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. When you've done something wrong, or maybe you've not even done something wrong, but you feel bad about something you've done, turns out you did it right, there are all these variations. The fact is, if your sorrowing is godly sorrow, it will cause you to turn towards God. It will cause you to change the way you see God, the way you see yourself in the mirror, and the way you see others. It will change. You'll turn. That's what godly sorrow will do, is it brings action that is drawing you closer to God. Worldly sorrow causes you to turn away from God, to lower your head in shame, in guilt, in self-loathing, in feelings of, I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never going to get this right. I am so bad. Do you know what you're saying when we say those kinds of things? We're saying, I need to be my own savior. I need to fix myself. I need to heal myself, which flies in the face of everything that Paul has been teaching with this great exchange. What he's saying is, godly sorrow is going to be this turning to God with, with a broken heart and a contrite spirit and saying, I can't do this. I'm broken. I'm, I'm incapable of fixing my problem. Wilt thou please have mercy on me through the atoning blood of thy Son, Jesus Christ, and help me not continue to struggle forever in these realms, but to be able to slowly over time have the Lord perform his redeeming grace-filled work in our lives, especially starting in our heart. 
So this portion of the letter has a nice concluding in verse 16, where Paul is, again, trying to express an apology, brother to brother, brother to sister in the gospel, but also recognizing his role as an apostle and a messenger of Jesus Christ, that sometimes he has to teach reminders that there are things that you need to do to be receiving all of this grace. But he concludes, I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. But where would he get that confidence from? Is, is it because the people somehow are perfect? They have chosen so well they never need God again? Or if we go back to chapter 5, verse 21, that Paul has confidence in them because he knows they're part of this great everlasting whole of the great exchange. In some ways, it might be we could see that Paul is saying, I have confidence in you because I have confidence in God. So as we conclude, our hope, our prayer, our desire, not just for us, but for all of us, is that we can put these lessons into action as you now go and study your own scriptures and, and review these principles and with a prayerful heart, ask the Lord to bless you, inspire you with what this looks like in your own life. How do we more fully embrace the incredible great exchange offering that has been made for us to be reconciled to God through his grace so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. That's our hope and our prayer and our testimony that he will do this work if we'll give our life to him. In, and we leave that with you in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness.